Welcome to this episode of Growing OT, the podcast that's developed and produced by the Society of Alberta Occupational Therapists. SAOT wants to get listeners excited about the wonderful world of OT. I'm your host, Vilmarie Myberg. Please take a moment to subscribe or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to us right now. Today, we are chatting with Jamie Inkpen, and this is particularly exciting as Jamie is the very first OT to be on the show. No pressure. Jamie is a licensed and certified occupational therapist with 18 years of clinical experience working within various settings, including continuing care, outpatients, and acute care. She has been a dysphagia therapist for 18 years. Jamie has worked within Alberta Health Services since 2005 and currently practices in a busy Edmonton area acute care center. When not working clinically, Jamie instructs and creates curriculum within the Interdisciplinary Therapy Assistant Program at Northwest College, where she teaches both OT-specific and interdisciplinary communication courses. Jamie has participated in various AHS initiatives to develop OT-specific policies and procedures for feeding and swallowing assessment, as well as to provide OT-specific insight into Connect Care feeding and swallowing documentation. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us today. We're excited to hear about your extensive experience as a dysphagia therapist. So to kick things off, Jamie, could you please share with us what initially sparked your interest in this specialized area of occupational therapy and how you found your way into becoming a dysphagia therapist? Sure. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm really humbled by your request to have me. When people talk to me and say, well, you're an expert in this, I'm like, oh no, like, I think, I think you're talking to the wrong person. I think you should be talking to someone else. I think I've always felt like I, I've just always been sort of nervous with the title of a specialist or an expert, but from what I've been told, I know a bit. Hopefully the <laughs> things that I can share with you today are helpful and enlightening on some level and change your practices in a meaningful way. So to answer your question, my first job was actually in long-term care in a rural Alberta community. And honestly, I wouldn't say that I went looking for dysphagia. I would kind of say that dysphagia found me in that <laughs> population. So there was a need for dysphagia assessment and treatment and management within my client population. And I knew from obviously school that this was an area that we could contribute to. And so it began. I think I was always a little bit nervous when practicing in this area, especially given some of the animosity that developed within sort of the SLP-OT relationship in terms of dysphagia. I was always hypervigilant that I was on top of the research and I understood as much as I possibly could. And I was really, really lucky as a rural therapist. You don't always have the opportunities that I got, but I had great SLP and OT mentors, and they were really encouraging and really wise and helped me sort of hone my skill set as a dysphagia therapist. That's great. That sounds like your ability to learn from mentors that were SLPs and OTs really informed your practice as you were learning about this area. So 
Along those lines, I'm wondering if you could provide us with an overview of your role as a dysphagia therapist and the importance of an interdisciplinary approach in this setting. Yeah, well, currently I'm I'm a frontline dysphagia therapist at an acute care hospital as well as being an occupational therapist. So I'm still completing functional assessments and cognitive assessments and um, ADL equipment prescription and assistive device um, recommendations and those types of things. But one of my major roles is um, the evaluation and management and treatment of dysphagia. So at the hospital where I work, OTs are typically the first professionals that receive the referral to evaluate a patient's feeding and swallowing. And we screen the referrals for appropriateness. And if appropriate, we'll complete an initial assessment of the patient's feeding and swallowing, including oral motor exam and looking at diagnostic imaging, laboratory panels, speaking to family members or patients about any sort of issues that they've been having, those kinds of things. And then once we're done that, we get the opportunity to collaborate with the interdisciplinary team. And our team includes pharmacists and physicians, SLPs, nurses, dietitians, nurse practitioners, physical therapists, healthcare aides, and sometimes even social workers to ensure that our clients or patients receive optimal interventions and monitoring. I don't really think I realized the importance of an interdisciplinary approach to dysphagia until I'd been practicing in the area of dysphagia for several years. Uh, especially when I was in long-term care, where you don't always have immediate and direct access to all the the team members. I didn't necessarily understand the chain reaction um, that recommendations for dysphagia management could set off and the number of sort of professional treatment plans that it could affect. And so when I say that, I when I started really reflecting on it, I pictured in my mind one of those cartoons where the character bends down to pick up like a quarter and their butt sort of inadvertently pushes over a column that's holding up a building, which sort of pushes over the next column holding up the building and so on until the character turns around and realizes the whole building has now collapsed. And then they were like, was that me? (laughs) And it's funny, but I had a bit of a crisis of conscience once I realized that by changing a patient or a resident in in long-term care setting where I was initially working, by changing their diet or changing something about the way that their meals were presented, I was also changing many other things for them. As an example, if I recommended thickened fluids or crushing meds, nursing had more work to do to deliver meds and and they needed to be more cognizant of what the patient or the residents are drinking. Many of our residents had cognitive impairments. And so if they're thirsty, they'll go to their sink in their room and they'll take a drink of water. It, it really increased the work for our healthcare aides and our nursing staff. Also learning things like Thickened fluids can affect the bioavailability of some medications. And this can mean that pharmacy and the physicians need to change the dosing of medications. They might not work for our our clients or our residents or our patients properly. Um, Thickened fluids and a change in diet can also lead to patients or residents eating and drinking less. It can be a result of these things like being unfamiliar to them, being, being having cognitive impairments and then being used to fluids that run pretty freely to things that are thickened. And if that happens, then the dietitians really need to look at different ways to ensure that our residents or patients or clients don't become malnourished and dehydrated, which can cause 
many other problems up to and in, including pneumonias and, and death. Mm-hmm. So changing dials can also, it just can affect the amount of time it takes for someone to eat a meal, which can mean that they miss some important physical therapy or rec therapy program and decreases their mobility and places them at risk for physical complications related to that. So there was just this whole sort of, I had this sort of aha moment where I was like, okay, whoa, wait a minute. I just thought I was picking up a quarter, but I felt a whole building. And so, like I said, there was a bit of a, a crisis of conscience, and that's when I really started to really pay attention to the importance of, of interdisciplinary collaboration and really bringing everybody into the fold as early as possible to ensure that the client wasn't negatively affected by decisions that I had made. Right. And you have touched on this a little bit in your answer, but I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little more about how swallow impacts function. I feel like we could talk about this for hours, even just looking at it on the surface. For healthy individuals with no swallow dysfunction, eating and drinking are safe and pleasurable and and highly sociable activities. So eating and swallowing kind of not only meet our basic needs of nutrition and hydration, but they're also a large part of how we connect with one another and celebrate and mourn. And so many holidays are celebrated over food and beverages. And when individuals pass away, what do we do? We tend to bring the family food. We eat with them and we eat at the funeral and we talk about our fond memories of that person. We talk to our families and check in with our kids over the dinner table. I mean, I just, I think about as an OT wearing that OT hat, I have to say it. If we just look at the Canadian model of occupational performance and engagement, swallowing and eating really touches on many aspects of that, the physical, so nourishment, physical abilities, right? If you're malnourished, if you're weak, you you lose things, you lose mobility. You can also lose some of your cognitive functioning. You can become hyponatremic. You can have other medical conditions. So if you can't eat, you can't swallow, if it's uncomfortable for you and you decide, I, I just would rather not, we know that there's going to be some problems for you down the line. So there's social, there's spiritual, there's cultural aspects. And an argument can be made for even leisure and perhaps productivity if we can look at the aspect of, of food preparation, right? I mean, often when we're preparing food, we're really looking forward to eating it. So swallowing and sort of the sequela of the experience of having an abnormal swallow can really be life-altering from a functional perspective. Now, you did say when you put your OT hat on, I'm curious, is your OT hat slightly different from your dysphagia therapist hat? Is it kind of the same hat with mixed in colors? No, I I don't think so. I think it's interesting. I talk about my OT hat. I I do think, and I can't remember who told the story or how this, how I remember this, but there's this sort of wise tale or this tale where there's these two young fish and they're hanging out in the lake. And there's this old fish that comes along and says, good morning, lads. The, the water's really, the water's really great today. And they're like, yeah, thanks, old, older man. And they, they look at each other and they go like, what the heck is water? Right. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> I feel like the Canadian model of occupational performance and engagement is kind of my water. And I don't necessarily always acknowledge that it's just this part of who I am as a clinician. So whether I'm a dysphagia in that sort of realm of I'm a dysphagia therapist, I can't, I, I, it's not mutually exclusive of me being an OT and it shouldn't be, but 
I mean, certainly they do tend to sometimes make more of a delineation in the literature. And I mean, I would argue that the one of the benefits of, of being part of an interdisciplinary team is that we all bring our own flavor to it. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a good question. So no, I don't think I, I kind of delineate that in my mind. I think no matter what I'm doing, even if I'm assessing dysphagia, I'm also looking at what this client's fine motor skills look like. How can we facilitate them eating independently? All of those things are always just in my mind, but they're my water. So I don't necessarily always concentrate on that. I really like that metaphor. Thank you for sharing that. Yes. Well, I didn't make it up and I can't take credit wow. for it, but I, I remember the story and I remember sort of thinking, <laughs> I get it. Like, I get what they mean by that. Throughout your 18 years of experience, what are some of the most common populations you've worked with and what kind of dysphagia problems have you encountered through the course of your practice? The most common population that I've worked with, hands down, has been elderly individuals. We know that advanced age can lead to things like sarcopenia, so age-related muscle loss in oral motor structures, multiple medical conditions that lead to, to polypharmacy, right? And polypharmacy comes with kind of some of its own problems like serostomia mm -hmm. or dry mouth, dysarthria can lead to things like tardive dyskinesias as well as thrush, which is like a yeast infection in, in the mouth that can extend down into the throat and into the esophagus and cause some major problems for us. Reduced immune system functions and changes in, in breathing and swallowing coordinations, which is actually seen in normal aging. And it's really important in terms of our ability to close off our airway and kind of cleanly pass that bolus into our esophagus, as well as lower levels of ADL function um, that can lead to poor oral hygiene. And this can be exacerbated for our elderly population by living on fixed incomes and not being able to afford dental care, as well as just like a lack of access to dental care. Um, in the last, in the 11 years that I worked in long-term care, I kind of digress, but I think maybe a handful of my residents saw a dentist. And that was just wow. crazy to me because we know how important dental care and dental health is too, that it's one of the number one predictors actually of the development of pneumonias. So I digress. I didn't know that. Yeah. No, that's but a I, But fact. I do feel, yeah. But I, I, I mean, it's kind of a digression. <laughs> I feel like we, we need to do better on this, right? I think we could probably actually prevent a large number of pneumonias in, in particular in long-term care residents just by getting them some, some dental care. But anyway, that's another sort of soapbox that I, that I regularly sort of talk, of, talk from. But the majority of the issues that I encounter in this population, to kind of answer your question, are things like dysphagia, seeing dysphagia at the end of meals, just as a result of fatigue of the oral and the pharyngeal muscles from frequent swallowing and, and mastication because they have had that age-related sarcopenia or some muscle wasting, frequent chest infections because they're generally immunocompromised or they have multiple medical conditions that lead to them not being able to fight off when they do aspirate. And we, we all aspirate. Um, we know this. We know that 50% of us aspirate when we're sleeping, but we don't develop pneumonia. So that's 
that's a whole other discussion. Maybe we'll we'll touch on it somewhere down the line here during the interview. And they're experiencing things like, like I talked about, that tardive dyskinesias or dry mouth or difficulty with articulation or thrush. And this all needs to be, this is all sort of the issues that we encounter that are leading to the, the problem of the dysphagia. And much of this we're assessing through oral motor exams, diagnostic tests, if they're available, like labs and imaging and observation, like just looking into the oral cavity and really trying to get in there to see what's going on, which can be somewhat of a challenge for some of our more cognitively impaired clients. Can you tell us a little bit more about that assessment process? It sounds like you're starting with observation, kind of looking to see what else is going on. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, when we're doing any initial assessment, I think I kind of alluded to it previously, but we really want to look at our clients' sort of dietary history. So, I mean, in a lot of places, right, with the sort of the electronic charting has been really nice because the nursing staff in most places will be charting how much clients are eating. And so, if we'll we'll look at things like ha- has there been a change in their intake, right? Especially when we have clients and, and many of my clients, I would say 75% of my clients, even in an acute care setting now, have cognitive impairments. And so they they have a difficult time sort of speaking about or articulating what their concerns are. Um, so one of the ways that they tell us that there's a concern is they'll stop eating or they'll stop drinking or they'll get really anxious around those times. So we'll look at what's the trend in, in their diet. And of course, the, the dietitians are awesome at looking at that. We'll look at things like weight. Have, have they had weight loss? We we always start our assessment with a full oral motor exam. So we're looking at, we're doing a quick cranial nerve screen to see that everything's working the way it should. The innervations seem to be appropriate. We're looking at the musculature. I also like to look at the coordination of the the tongue with within the oral cavity because we know that swallowing is a series of of valves that really need to be like opened and closed at very specific times. And if there's a discoordination there, there's a leak in the system, and and that can often lead to to issues with feeding and swallowing. I like to look at breath support. Because if individuals are are having difficulty just breathing, they're going to have difficulty swallowing. And the reason for that is because we cannot breathe and swallow at the same time. And if you are working really hard to breathe, so if you're breathing in every second, we have a problem because it takes about two seconds from the time we put food or fluid in our mouths to the time that we actually swallow it. So if you're breathing in within a second of that, you're breathing something into your lungs typically. So I like to look at just their overall general health too. And then we actually will start presenting different foods, different fluids, different textures to see how the client responds. And can you tell us how you would confirm that someone has dysphagia? Yeah, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Right? Because I mean... Uh, That's a huge question. When I was in long-term care, we didn't have access to the technology, including video fluoroscopic swallowing studies, right? And that's the study where you take food and fluid that has barium. We actually take a video of the client swallowing it in in an AP view, and we can see if a client aspirates. 
Now, it's an interesting question because I've I've taken individuals to the video swallowing suite that we were pretty certain were were aspirating based on some of the things that we picked up on our bedside assessment, which I can talk about in a in a couple seconds here, as well as the fact that they their chest status wasn't getting any better, so they continued to have chest infection even though they were being treated medically for it. And they haven't aspirated at all. So sometimes it's that moment in time they're doing better. They could have asked, they could have aspirated before, but they're not aspirating now. But really, for me, when I'm when I'm really questioning, okay, is this person aspirating, and is this aspiration causing problems for them from a pulmonary perspective and a nutritional perspective? the types of things that I'm looking for. And again, like this is not an absolute, it's quite nuanced when you really sort of get into the thick of it, but you're looking to see, are they really coughing and hacking every time they eat? Are, when are they coughing? If, if they have a baseline cough, then that's not really a great predictor. But if, if they're not really coughing and then they take a drink and they're just hacking, that's a pretty good that's a pretty good indicator that something went down as we say the wrong tube right because our body has um, definite defenses in terms of how to combat that and one of those things is to cough to try to eject things out of our airway things like food being pocketed and lots of residue on the tongue it's normal for us to have some residue but if clients have a whole bunch of pocketing in like their oral sulci, for example, or a whole bunch of residue on their tongue, and then they fall asleep and they're breathing as they're sleeping, things are typically typically going to end up in their airway. I'm kind of spoiled in that I have access to laboratory values. So we, we tend to really have a, a good look at and follow their white blood cell count, in particular neutrophils. Are, are correlated, higher neutrophils are correlated with, with pneumonias and aspiration pneumonia currently in the literature. And that's a whole nother topic as well that maybe we'll talk about a little bit, I think, when we get down to some maybe other questions. And of course, just generally the overall sort of oxygen status of the client. So if they're eating and they're drinking and we have them on a regular diet and we're treating them medically with medication, antibiotics and steroids or whatever the physician has decided or the nurse practitioner is the appropriate approach and they don't get better and their oxygen demands continue to increase. So if they're on one liter of oxygen when we start to see them and now they're on five liters of oxygen, that to me also is indicative that, yeah, maybe something's, something's going on. Potentially they have a dysphagia. I hope that kind of answers the question. That really does. Thank you very much. So the answer is it's complicated. It sounds like at least you have access to a lot of different tools that can inform your decision making and practice. Absolutely. And I think I I recognize coming from that long-term care perspective that we do not always have that. So I'm a little bit spoiled at this point. Now, can you speak a little about you've suspected dysphagia, you've gone through the assessment process, and you've confirmed that someone has dysphagia? How do you then begin to address that? Yeah. So how to address dysphagia is probably 
like the biggest question, right? I think what we need to do is really start with the assessment and get the data that you can in front of you. And then you really need to bring in the client and their caregivers or their family or the decision makers or all of them and really discuss the philosophy of care. Evidence-based practice requires us to incorporate the needs and the values of our patients and balance these with the client's sort of swallowing safety. So often needs and values are, are nuanced and they're really multifaceted. And so the goal isn't always for the client or the client's decision maker based on what they feel the client would have wanted. The goal is not always, I want to avoid aspiration at all costs. And I want to avoid the risk that I will develop a pneumonia in relation to that aspiration. Number one, we know that it will never be possible, even with tube feeding, in particular with tube feeding, actually, which is kind of a bit of a, a catch-22, but to avoid aspiration. And number two, considerations like quality of life, nutrition, hydration, and just satiety also need to be considered. So how do we address the dysphagia? What we do is we give them sort of the quantitative data that we have managed to gather, whether that be from the bedside, because I mean, I'm just going to be honest, in, in rural Alberta, it could take up to eight months for me if I really felt that somebody needed a video fluoroscopy. It could take up to eight months uh, before I could get a video fluoroscopy. So what am I supposed to do? Say like, let's not feed this person for eight months. I mean, that's ridiculous. I will kill them that way, right? Right. If I made that recommendation. So we have to really, we have this recommendation, this quantitative data that says we think that you are aspirating on thin fluids and we would like to thicken your fluids to whatever level or consistency we feel you can manage, right? And that's based on, when I was in rural Alberta, that was based on my bedside assessment. That was based on, okay, when I give you thin fluids, you, you're hacking like you're coughing up your lungs, right? When I give you mildly thick fluids or nectar thick fluids or whatever sort of system you're, you're using to address the levels that you've thickened to, you don't. And you, you seem to be able to manage that. And when we put you on these fluids, we were able to treat your chest infection and you seem to get better and you haven't had another episode uh, of a chest infection in eight months. So my best guess is that you were aspirating on the thin fluids and that was just causing you to be overloaded and you couldn't fight off the bacteria or what that was being washed down and and you developed that pneumonia. Um, now, that being said, we have this, what I would call sort of loosely quantitative because it's not a gold standard. It's not a video fluoroscopy. If we have a video fluoroscopy and we can show them right here, you can see like we'll show our clients a video. This is your video. And as you can see, you're clearly aspirating this fluid and you can see it go down into the lungs. We'll show them that. But even then, really addressing the dysphagia is a, it's a conversation it's us presenting sort of the data and then the client or their decision maker, or guardian or whomever has that, that sort of right to make those decisions for the client if they can't make decisions for themselves. It's about what are you, what's the philosophy of care? What are your goals of care? And for some of the clients, especially clients in long-term care, or they're like, I've had somebody say death by chocolate. 
if I can't eat chocolate, I'd rather be dead. <laughs> so, right? Or if I can't eat ice cream, I might as well not go on living. Okay. Doesn't get any more clear than that. Yeah, exactly. So when you're working with your interdisciplinary team to address this eating, feeding, and swallowing, how do you leverage each other's skill sets to meet the client or the resident's goals of care? I think having the opportunity to touch base every morning at rounds, like in my current setting with the interd team is, is huge. And like I keep saying, I realize coming from that long-term care background where we just didn't have the opportunity for many different reasons, that I'm super spoiled in this regard. But I would say that sort of meeting every morning gives us the opportunity to check in on our patients, all of them, of course, not just the ones with dysphagia, and, and what challenges relating to their dysphagia that they're facing and really problem solve. It can be something as simple as, yeah, they've been on, on thickened fluids for five days and we're noticing that their tremors are coming back. And then the pharmacist and the physician are like, well, maybe it's a, it's a bioavailability problem. Maybe we need to look at the dosing of, of their uh, medication. But even professionals that you may not expect to be deeply involved in dysphagia management, they, they will contribute meaningfully to the team. Like an example would be our social worker might help with funding for thickeners um, on, on discharge, right? A lot of people like, I can't afford this. Or they may help with on-demand sort of meals, things like, I'm not exactly sure, but Meals on Wheels or Sage Meals or Heart to Home that can sometimes provide modified texture type meals. And they may be able to help with different funding options and things for that for our clients. Transition coordinators can assist us with ensuring that there's a continuation of care when patients are discharged. And these are like incredibly important and practical pieces of dysphagia management that having the interdisciplinary team right there really makes a difference. Even when we're managing individuals with acute chest infections, our physio is a huge resource through some of their pulmonary exercises and the mobility stuff. We know that getting people up and moving really helps with facilitate that mucociliary uh, escalator helps clear the lungs. It's that idea that our main goal is to help our clients be well again, whatever that means for them and help them get to where they need to go out of the hospital. Okay. Now, shifting gears a little bit, I'm curious to know what your observations about how a COVID and possibly a long COVID diagnosis might have impacted feeding and swallowing in the patients that you've worked with recently. There's some current evidence on COVID-19-associated oropharyngeal dysphagia that's showing that like neuro, neurologic complications, including things like myopathy, so affecting uh, the muscles that control voluntary movement and polyneuropathy, so where many nerves in different parts of the body are involved in patients with COVID-19 are linked to damage of the swallowing neural network. So we have some sort of research that's like evolving, like just coming out. Um, there's changes in the efficiency often in these, these clients of the normal breathing and swallowing patterns. So we've had that discussion about how we can't breathe and swallow at the same time. The most common normal breathing and swallowing pattern is for us to exhale, swallow, and then exhale. Of course, that's our body's way of protecting. So 
it's we're exhaling after the swallow because if we have anything left in there, we don't want to take a nice deep breath in and suck it all into our lungs. And there's definitely some research out there that suggests that swallowing pattern, that normal breathing and swallowing pattern due to the pulmonary complications associated with COVID will make eating exhausting and challenging for some clients. I've had clients say that they experience coughing and breathlessness during eating and drinking to the point where, again, it affects their sort of drive to even do those things because they feel that it just sucks all of their energy. And how do I do other things? The the biggest complication that I've seen because at the hospital, the mat, we have a we have an ICU has been complications that we've been aware of for a long time that are associated with endotracheal tubes and tracheostomies. Of course, endotracheal tubes we know can lead to oral and laryngeal trauma, which in turn makes it really difficult for clients to swallow because we've sort of damaged the structures that are required to do that. Currently, I'd say we're really treating all of these complications the same way that we would treat them when they're the result of other conditions. So the myopathy, the the polyneuropathies, the disruption in swallowing and breathing patterns, we see these things in, in other neurological diseases Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease is an example for a lot of clients that have issues with the swallowing breathing patterns. But I wouldn't say we're doing anything new currently to approach it, but trying to stay on top of it. And perhaps some new treatment ideas are in the works or will come of this. Perhaps someone with more time than me is looking into if there's better ways to treat these. But really, we're really using a lot of the sort of the the research that we already have established because many of these complications are complications of other conditions. I can imagine it's rarely just one thing causing the dysphagia. It's a whole domino effect, it sounds like. That's right. Yeah. I'm wondering if you can speak a bit about your work developing policies and procedures specific to feeding and swallowing assessment and how this maybe has impacted the landscape for OTs practicing in this area. It's not as glamorous as it sounds. Really, it's been consultation for anybody familiar with Connect Care. When Connect Care first came out, there was a real sort of concentration on the use of a part of the system called flow sheets. And so it was really more initially about what do we put in the flow sheets? What do we put under oral MEC exam? So what are our constructs there? And, and what should we name it so that everybody understands what that is? And then as Connect Care rolled out, there was a question of could we, as occupational therapists, could we do orders? Could we change diet orders? There was a consultation about if we can or we can't. So I actually consulted the college, the Alberta College of Occupational Therapists, to see what our role was in that and and found out that, yes, it was in our scope of practice as long as we are competent in the area. And then they came back to what constitutes competency in, in that area and some of the things about that. And they have a really good position statement on the OT's role of feeding and swallowing on the ACOT website. And it's been updated to reflect some of the questions I think that we brought forward to them. So it was about how do we communicate our recommendations? Uh, because once we had a way of, of documenting them, we also had to have a way of communicating them via our charting. And 
And so it was really about that. So it's not, like I said, as glamorous as it sounds, but it was about sort of the practicalities of how do we ensure that everybody is on the same page with the terminology and how do we ensure that we're all following the same policies and procedures. And of course, I guess I just have to state the caveat is even though the Alberta College of Occupational Therapists states that we can make those diet orders, different institutions or different health conglomerates just may have different policies and procedures about that. So you have to make sure to check on that. I work with NHS and that's something that we are permitted to do. Thank you for clarifying. And as you were going through that process of streamlining things, was that interdisciplinary as well? Absolutely. Of course, the dietitians were really involved because there were sites that were using different vocabulary for the different levels of thickened fluids. So some people were using level one, level two, level three. Some people were using nectar, honey, pudding. Some people were using mildly thick, moderately thick, and extremely thick. So we all had to come together and as well as, of course, the SLPs and really say, what are the operational definitions, so to speak, of what we're doing here? And so we all had to come and agree on what the terms were going to be and what they meant. Besides registering for your interdisciplinary adult dysphagia workshop through SAOT, for those listening at home, there are online live sessions happening on November 18th and December 1st. Where would be the best place for therapists to start if they're seeking additional education in this area? Definitely, I would say mentorship. I'd say find an SLP Find an OT that has experience in these areas. I mentor when we get new staff and new graduates and students from the university. I mentor them. I think also that's been, for me, that's been the most meaningful, the most meaningful learning tool is the mentorship that I've gotten. And I wish I could shout out and name all of the amazing mentors I've had, but that would take a long time. And I know we only have so much time. But I think mentorship is is very, very important. I think reading and, and critically thinking about current dysphagia research articles. So obviously there is a journal dysphagia, um, which I, I tend to like to to peruse pretty regularly, but there's others. And I think the piece that I want to highlight is critically think about those research articles because I would say when I was a new grad, I was like, great. I would read a research paper and I'd be like, yes, this is gospel and, and I'm going to apply it just as exactly as they've said it. And I've really come to understand that it's really not that way. One of the best examples of that is, is the use of the term aspiration pneumonia. There's really no operational definition of what aspiration pneumonia means. And not even radiologists, if you talk to them, can really describe how do you know when you say on here that it's suggestive of an aspiration pneumonia? Like, how do you know that that's, and they're like, well, we don't really know. And so that's really a whole interesting topic that I could talk about that in particular for probably three hours. So 50% of normal, healthy adults aspirate while they sleep and we don't develop aspiration pneumonia. Why is this? And when you really take a look at the research, the terms pneumonia and aspiration pneumonia are often really used to mean the same thing, but there are many different types of pneumonia and many of them aren't 
related to aspiration. And there's good research out there that suggests that radiologists diagnosing like any type of pneumonia with about a sensitivity of 69% on chest x-ray. And they don't really have an idea of what caused this pneumonia. So they, they'll say it's suggestive of an aspiration pneumonia, but we don't know. It used to be thought that pneumonias in the gravity-dependent lower lobe were indicative of aspiration pneumonia, but they've also found that that might not be the case. So there, it's really interesting because there's been many, many articles that talk about aspiration pneumonia. One of the most famous being Langmore et al. in 1998. They published an article that is widely, widely cited. Uh, I see it like everywhere. It was a well-done study. It was called Predictors of Aspiration Pneumonia, How Important is Dysphagia? It was one of those things that really honestly just altered the landscape of what it meant to work in dysphagia because it basically went on to say that the best predictors of aspiration pneumonia weren't really aspiration. It was individuals being dependent for feeding, dependent for oral care, like we talked about, the number of decaying teeth they had, if they were Mm -hmm. tube fed, and if they had more than one medical diagnosis, they were on a number of medications or if they smoked. Like aspiration wasn't even on the list. I always kind of raise my eyebrow a little bit when I read aspiration pneumonia because the fact of the matter is I don't think we're really good at defining what that is, which makes it really difficult when your initial training, and we have to start somewhere, is aspiration is the enemy. Aspiration is, and now the question is like, what is the enemy? Right? Right. And so I think one of the things you will find and individuals who are really delving into and decide to take the dive and go down the rabbit hole with dysphagia is that the more you learn, the less you know. And, mm-hmm. and that's okay because at the end of the day, my advice when it starts to feel overwhelming, which often it does for my mentees and myself, is we have to do the best we can with the information that we have. We're clinicians, right? And so I, I could go on, but we have to look, we have to read research articles critically and not think that just because it's published, that it's all of it is necessarily true. And we also have to be careful of what we read. I, I've had articles that I've read and individuals have made statements in it and referenced other articles. And then I've gone to the other article that they've referenced and I've been like, that's not what this article says at all. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And so they interpreted this completely different from the way that I'm interpreting it. And so, yeah, we have to be critical, but it's what we have. Current research, you want to look for RTCs, these types of things. But you also have to understand that clinically, randomized control trials are are the gold standard for, for research, of course. But in a clinical situation, you don't get this perfect inclusion and exclusion criteria that we need to use in randomized control trials. And so we have to be really mindful. And sometimes I'll read research and they'll do things like, we had a bunch of people on Optiflow, for example, which is a type of breathing assistance that's not a tracheot, like an endotracheal tube or a tracheotomy. So it's kind of like a step before we, we look at doing those things or before, not me, 
I don't make those decisions, but before the physicians look at doing those things. And they'll say, you can feed people when they're on this apparatus, this breathing assist apparatus. And I'll, I'll look at the research and I'll go, like, they did this research on like healthy 35-year-old men. These are not the patients that I have that are on OptiFlow. Right. <laughs> I don't have a healthy 35-year-old man in an ICU bed on OptiFlow. So yes, potentially healthy 35-year-olds can overcome some of the, the limitations that being on OptiFlow impose, but that's not, <laughs> that's not my client or that's not my patient. Thank you for sharing your thoughts on rigorously reviewing papers that we are reading. No problem. I have a couple of other recommendations, though, okay. that are kind of more fun. Okay. And then I'll, I'll Perfect. leave you. Like I said, I could honestly love dysphagia. I could talk about it for hours. So you don't want to get me started. But anyway, I really love to like peruse. There's a couple of sites. Dysphagiacafe.com is one. Swallowstudy.com is another. And dysphagiaramblings.com. Those are really great. I'm kind of a geek and I just like to read them in my spare time. So there's sort of, there are a lot of like opinion pieces, but they're written by frontline clinicians. Some are researchers and they're referencing research and, and sometimes they're, they're critiquing it, which is also nice to see. There's also some really good textbooks out there about interdisciplinary dysphagia teams, Although many of them come out of the States where the SLP is much more involved than the OT for various reasons. And so I'm always, I always read them sort of, I kind of look at them when I'm reading them as SLP and OT being interchangeable. Great. That's a great tip. Thank you. And for the folks listening at home, what would be the best way for them to connect with you online if they'd like to chat further? Well, I don't do social media at all. <laughs> Yeah. So I, I think I have, they could contact me. I have an email address that I use for some of the education that I provide. And it's inkpenotedconsulting at gmail.com. Perfect. Thank you. And I don't check it all the time, but I certainly will try to get back to individuals and, and answer questions as, as they come up for people. Now, because we've spent so much time talking about feeding and swallowing, I have to know what your favorite food is. Oh, pizza. I love pizza. I just, yeah. If no I could, hesitation. If I had to eat one food. No, no hesitation. One food for the rest of my life, it would be pizza. Okay. And what food do you absolutely hate? Oh. Oh, I know. So my, my partner is Portuguese. And he likes sardines, and I, I don't like sardines. And it's like a big thing in Portugal, sardines. And I'm like, no, I can't do it. <laughs> so definitely sardines. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time and energy. It's been a delight getting to know more about you and this specialized area of OT practice. I know our listeners will find a ton of value in the thoughts you shared about the importance of interdisciplinary practice and also critical thinking when reading research articles, among others. So thank you so much for your time this evening. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me.